Welcome to Property Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, have you ever paid a dumb tax? Several. Beautiful. You know what one of the greatest dumb taxes as we come to the end of this financial year is? I don't tell me. Not being on the newsletter. So if you're listening to this and you are not on the newsletter, avoid that dumb tax. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email. Hit subscribe and we'll notify you every single time we drop one of these episodes and maybe an Easter egg along the way. Now, Charlie, let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. Do you know what, Grant? Not being informed about tax really is a dumb tax. It is the greatest dumb tax, and that hence why I inform people about a newsletter. Have you paid any dumb tax when it comes to property thus far? I, to an extent of choices that I should have done. I have definitely, and hopefully you've just been learning through some of the terrible decisions I've made earlier on <laughs> going for speed. And I have absolutely paid some uh, dumb tax in the property game. But do you I know might what? Have, might have. The more expensive something is for me to learn, I seem to learn it really well, like really well. My, ba- my brain absorbs it so much better than it. <laughs> yeah, like if you accidentally put a property in the wrong structure, not realising the, the tax implications of that, oh, that's a, that's a spicy one. <laughs> funnily enough, that is the one of the ones that I'm like, oh, man, not as, not as bad as others, but yes, still not fun. All right, so um, can, can I start this one with a, a little story that I think is a little bit too common in the property space? As long as we can explain what we're actually going to be talking about, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. Do you know what? We should start this episode with talking about what we're actually talking about as a topic. <laughs> and if anyone hasn't picked up on the theme yet, it's tax season. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. We might even be a little bit early. June 30 hasn't actually happened yet. It's actually pre-tax season. That's why we're those types of guys. Should you think of this like the preseason before the real game? Yeah, I feel like this is us rocking up to the party early. One of the things I found really interesting, Grant, you and I come from what I'll call the business world, right? We spend a lot of our time in business um, and then we've kind of transitioned into the property space or we started spending more time with people in the property space. One of the things I've found astoundingly interesting is the amount of people that don't think of their investment properties as a business. Now, if we go to our business community and we said, hey, guys, what do you do before June 30? There's always like, you know, we all know the game. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. We're going to prepare for tax. It's tax time. Yep. I have had a conversation with someone who I won't name because they're actually quite successful in the space. But literally, I've gone, oh, how are you thinking about coming into June 30? And they go, oh, yeah, I better get my books done. I haven't done that in a while. Like that conversation was the prompt for them to. (laughs) So they're not even updating. Like they don't run a P&L, they don't have a cash flow report and they don't have a balance sheet for their investment property or your property businesses, I like to think about it, Mm -hmm. right? So when we get close to June is actually when they go through the accounts and start getting things together. Yep. Now that concerns the shit out of me. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. It concerns me as well. Uh, Why? Why? 
I just don't think it's common. I think it's easy to get away with where uh, you and I, as I said, this is where it's like conditioning and biases come into it. So, in you know, when I look at why do you get your books and accounts done monthly, for a lot of people the first thing they say is compliance. You know, the reason we do our accounts is just, you know, to know how much tax we've got to pay, we're trying to minimise tax, that type of thing. Yep. But the reality is for uh, myself, the reason I get my books done every month is because I want really strong numbers and data to be strategically driven in what moves I make next. Yep. So I want to know, like, what's the position of my debt? How's my cash flow? How's my expenses? Because I may or may not buy another property. Now, uh, coming into tax time, this is also a time where you can be very strategic on what moves you may make in a certain financial year to be tax advantageous or disadvantageous. And, and again, I'm just I'm very convinced people, uh, property investors, aren't aware of some of the ramifications of their decisions and also the opportunities that fall through playing certain strategies at certain times. Yeah, or even, yeah, the, the benefits is probably one of the biggest plays here because after tax time, is when most people go and reconcile to which you can't play any of the opportunistic decisions. <laughs> like you can't make them, right? Like everything has to be done by the 30th of June. And uh, if it's done after it, it is falls into the next financial year. Like it's very challenging to backdate things. Well, can I use some examples here that are not financial advice, but just things for consideration? Totally. If you've had a very profitable year, so let's say you're a, a cash flow positive investor, you look into the end of the year and you're like, wow, I'm going to have to really pay a lot of tax. This might be a time where you go around and look at all your properties and go, what upgrades can I do? Definitely. I'm going to actively bring down my uh, payable tax because I'm going to get houses painted. I'm going to get roofs fixed. I might even do a renovation that could increase future cash flow. So again, it's not that you're um, not paying tax or trying to be loophole-ish. It's just you're being strategic on when you're going to do things so that you can make great future decisions. It's a sequencing. Right, because then it's it's like if I was to paint a place or I was to repair a couple of walls or do something, um, spending that money on this side of the financial year then will most probably increase or improve my cash flow or maintain my cash flow for the next financial year. Right? Can I use an example? Let's do it. Now, people talk about negative gearing as the only way to win the tax game in property, and I'm just going to say bullshit. <laughs> Absolute bullshit. I was going to say with trust structures, not so much. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. I want to tackle some of the myths and things there as well, right? But um, in uh, predominantly, right, where you come to the challenges of like growth investing and cash flow investing, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people prefer growth investing because it gives you a tax deferred strategy. So rather than having to pay tax every year on the gains the property makes through capital, um, you get to defer that out. Where in a cash flow investing scenario, you don't because once you are paid rent and creating tax flow, you pay cumulatively tax on the scenario. But again, I think we're missing things here where it's like in some situations, depending on the property you have bought, there's opportunities to upgrade that property and use some of that cash flow to maybe create a better situation ongoingly. So let's tackle this. Let's say you bought a property and it is cash flow positive and we're just going to use easy numbers. There's 10 grand of uh, profit sitting on it right now, which means after all expenses and interest, you made 10 grand of profit. You actually have the opportunity you could spend 10 grand on a renovation to actually even increase the cash flow further that would negate your win there. And you would pay, in that example, no tax. Completely. 
So you could do an upgrade a strategy or a property maintenance strategy to improve future earnings. Again, if you add on a room, upgrade a bathroom or a kitchen, put in air conditioners, make the joint look nicer, you might be able to charge higher rent in the following year. We're um, we're actually doing something slightly different on one of the properties. And to be transparent, we own it in our personal names, right? So not in a in a trust structure otherwise, which means that the cash coming off this property is a taxable event and it, it has had an extremely profitable year, especially because it's on a fixed interest rate mortgage and it's on a very high rental yield. Uh, and so we're now looking at what can we do to minimize maintenance in the future <laughs> so that we can maximize returns. But, but what so, a great idea. Yeah. So we're looking at, so in the backyard, we've got this horrific tree that just like litters the place and it's just, it looks atrocious and it's got possums in it and we've had possums in our roof and all. It's just caused a whole heap of problems. And so we're like, okay, well, let's go and invest. I think it's like 1500 bucks to go and lop the tree, rip the tree out. And we just don't have to deal with that problem anymore. And we're looking at doing that and paying for it on this side of the financial year. And it doesn't matter if they remove the tree on the other side of the financial year. We just need to get this paid and done utilizing the cash from this year so that we can have this property at a minimal maintenance level for the years to come. Huge, right? This is where the strategic nature of thinking about tax is very different. I want to jump to another one here around like tax loss harvesting as a bit of a different one as well. I love tax loss harvesting. You shouldn't love it that much, right? This is coming from uh, it means you've used it. it means you made some bad investment grant. <laughs> I might have I might have had a couple of bad investments in my lifetime, Charlie, but I appreciate that there is a mechanism to help people like me. Again, not financial advice. I think I've said that a hundred times in this episode, but something to consider in your situation and speak with your accountant and tax advising team on. If you maybe got excited and bought a property in a mining town, or you bought some apartment off the plan and it hasn't gone well. And you're sitting there and you're holding an asset that's uh, inhibiting your portfolio. If you're in a time where maybe you're electing to sell an asset that's done well, you can negate some of the tax. So, for example, let's pretend you bought a property for a million dollars and it went up to 1.1. You made 100 grand in capital gains. You sold it. You would have 100 grand uh, in profit that you would be taxed on appropriately. I'm not going to cover CGT discounts or anything at the moment, but there's 100 grand to be taxed on. If you had another property in your portfolio that you have lost money on, and let's use it really simply here, you, you bought the next door's property, but you didn't go well and you lost 100 grand on it. If you sold that in the same year, you'd just pay zero tax, right? Because you would crystallize the loss. The loss and the gain would negate each other. But again, it's like for many people in their strategy, selling down properties is a part of the strategy. So yep. if you have dud assets in your portfolio that are inhibiting you along the journey, in those selective years when you want to do the sell down, it may be appropriately to a great time to change assets. Yeah. It may be a great time to reallocate capital and do other things, which I think is a really exciting uh, opportunity in itself also. Now, I know I get too excited when it comes to like tax loss harvesting. And it's because of not, not enough people Yeah, what skeletons in your closet? What have you got a loss on? I refuse. What is it? If we're in America, I plead the fifth. Like I refuse to mention. We there might have been some uh, little sort of crypto things here or there, but we shan't <laughs> name names. We shan't even indicate what it was. Uh, wait, wait, wait. If I went out at night and I looked at the sky and it was a very um, lunarous night, so the moon was, you know, right up there, would, would I be in that proximity at all? Uh, yes, that sounds very, <laughs> all right. very close to what it may or may not have been. Okay, interesting. We'll call it. L. No, that's too obvious. We'll call it Una. 
There you go. <laughs> no, so the thing that I like about tax loss harvesting, enough about me with my speculative investments in a past life, Charlie, I'm a new reborn human being right now, um, is more is less about the ability to offset tax by losing money on selling an investment. It's more about the assessing the asset and it's not like all lost. So you and I always talk about how we invest for the long term, right? We're buying properties for decades to come. This is the Wait, ability. don't pigeonhole me into that right now. I just turned it into a flipper at I another point. Jammed you into it. Well, decade to come. Um, where it's the opportunity for you to actually assess an asset where you go, is this still a good asset for me to have in the portfolio over the next five to 10 years? Right. And if you feel like it's not, then it's better to replace that asset with a better asset. And there is a mechanism if you have lost money on it called tax loss harvesting, where you get to. You used it in your example that million dollars and you sold it for nine hundred thousand. You've got that hundred thousand dollars difference to actually offset some tax on it, and so I think it's a great time just to sort of come up against that question of just going: Is this still the best asset for me? I hugely concur here, and I know we're biased into each other's views. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't do this podcast. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting part of the conversation because in uh, other arenas, tax loss harvesting doesn't necessarily inhibit borrowing power. Completely. But in property, because the likelihood of someone having a loan with it, it's the loan that's the asset that could be utilized somewhere else that's been taken up. So if yep. you've got a dud asset and you've got a mortgage on that, it's not just that you've lost the money on the investment, it's that you didn't or been inhibited in the idea of gone, if I sold that and take that loss, not only am I now able to use a tax loss harvesting strategy or offset that loss against a future gain, but it's being able to go, my borrowing power is just increased by whatever that loan amount was and maybe you can get yourself into a better or higher quality asset for your situation. Entirely. So okay. huge there, hugely appropriate. One of the other layers that I think about and look at when it comes to this point is it's almost like this bookmark every single year where I get the opportunity to go and talk to like my tax accountant to actually say, hey, where do I, where do I sit here? What are we actually looking at? But you and I talk about how you don't do it at the 30th of June or after it, <laughs> to your point, where you actually do it prior to it. Is there anything else outside of like the tax loss harvesting and reassessing where you're at that you talk to them about? Yeah, massively. Time? So for me here, like as soon as Q1 finishes, that's the signal to go and actually speak to my accountant. So like 31st of March, bam. Yeah, in the calendar, goes off. Time to talk to the accountant. Uh, reason for that is that if you've ever been to a florist on Valentine's Day or a fish and chip shop on Good Friday, is that if you go and try and talk to your accountant closer to June 30 or in July, they're so busy that it's going to be difficult to get the space to do things. Um, it's also going to give you a very narrow window of time where you can actually make changes. Totally. So if you have a conversation in, let's say, May right, with your accountant, is you've still got room to do things. And I would even argue in property, it's better to do it in uh, potentially April because if you want to sell a property, that's not a quick process. Yep. So if you want to get a transaction in before the June 30 cutoff for a particular year, you want to have some time on your side. You really do. Um, so I think that's a very appropriate thinking. The next thing that comes into that is when I speak with my accountant, one of the first things I'm asking them is looking at what my tax or payable tax is for the year. So- I love about property, it's so forecastable, right? We know the rents so already. Predictable. Yeah. yeah, you should be able to forecast your uh, 
tax payable or receivable, depending on what you know your situation is. Uh, looking at that, at very very almost to the T by this time. Like anything you change from here, and I realize like a repair may come out that's unforeseen and you couldn't necessarily predict that. But compared to like some businesses where you don't know what sales are going to be, right, this is a very predictable model. So I would speak to my accountant and go, well, if things go relative as they are, what am I up for from a tax position? And that might be land tax. That might be accounting fees for your structures. There might be changes and uh, a whole bunch of stuff that go into it you might need to be aware of. So I would very much do that. And having your books up to date is a requirement on that as well. For there to be an accurate representation of how much tax you need to pay, you would need your books to be up to date to forecast that. So, you know, for all the property people out there that don't really keep up to date books, this is just another reason to get on top of that. And then the thing I do after that with my accountant is actually go through the plan and strategy for the following year. So if I may say to them in this case is going, hey, I'm actually thinking about buying another property next year. Or next year we're, we're having a gap year. We're not. We're going to uh, consolidate, maybe do some renovations or something. But we're very much looking at doing it this, and be looking for them to how to do things appropriately as well. So again, this is one of those things where you would want to lean on your accounting team and your finance team and your mortgage broker to know what's appropriate if you do have plans and where you're trying to get to. I think that that's one of the layers that is missed the most is actually communicating to where you're trying to get to to your tax account. They're not just a compliance person. They're not just there to tick a box. And sign but they're a not mind readers. No, it's totally. And it's, but there are things that they can do with the information that you provide them. <laughs> like it's a, if they're just sitting there saying, hey, like if you're sitting there saying, can you just go and complete my tax for the end of the financial year? They will do that. But if you sit there and say, hey, we've got to do this. Is there any move that I should make or any things that I should be aware of as we lead up towards the end of the financial year? slash anything that we should look into for next year because I'm looking to acquire two additional properties, what should we do now? Like they have the information, they have the knowledge to help you with it. It's the only barrier is you actually talking to them about the thing. Like, Completely. I, I find, I, yeah, find too many people just hold that close to their chest. I've been astonishingly amazed by how many people expect their accountant and their mortgage broker to be the ones providing the strategy on the insights on your goals where it's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, I, they're very much the idea is like, let's just use an arbitrage thing. Let's say you're someone and you're at three properties right now and things are going pretty well. Right, so you've got three good assets, your income's pretty good, maybe you've got some money in super and stuff. Like you're, overall, you're in a good financial position. You go to your accountant, he looks at it and goes, man, you're killing it. He's not going to know uh, from that perspective. He might think this is it. Yeah. Because it's this like you're goal. in a strong position. You've hit maybe, what you want. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's looking at it and going for, you know, your age and stuff, you're doing really well. I wouldn't change anything. But maybe your plans is, do you know what? I want to buy another three properties in the next year. What does it need to look like so I can do that? Yeah. For people that are in my situation, how have they made the jump to the next three properties or five properties? And I love that question. If you can get in uh, an opportunity to speak with your mortgage broker and accountant and your financial planner, uh, if you have one, and go, for people that have been in a similar position like me and want to get to here, how have they done it? What have they done? Yeah. Yeah, get the sequencing and stuff of someone who's been in that because a huge gap, and I recognize this in myself, when we started to go from, let's say, five properties to 10 properties, whole different set of challenges. And it is not fun being surprised by those challenges. They were very knowable challenges that just no one told us because we didn't ask. We didn't know to ask. Yeah. So 
And it's almost like this point, like if you're trying to ask those, well, if you are asking those questions to your accountant and they have no examples and they have nothing to go off, it's a great sign to go and look for another accountant. Would you ever use an accountant that didn't have property being you are a property investor? No, no. You know what? I'm fine that my accountant obviously does, but I'm fine if they don't have property. But if they've got clients that have done the thing that I'm looking to do and they were the ones that held their hand through it, that's like the bare minimum requirement. And them actually having property and doing the thing themselves is like they're ticking all the boxes, <laughs> right? Like it's like, okay, so you know how to do the thing for the people who have done what I'm trying to do. Great. Like technically strong, but are you doing the things, which means that you're going to be level, leveling up, which means you're going to be trying different approaches. Great. That's just another big tick and I'm not going to go anywhere. Maybe. You could do that. I'm not doing that. What are you doing? Uh, it's the care factor thing, right? So I'll look at this right now. If, you're, if your accountant has been heavily successful in the stock market, I mean heavily and got proof of it. Totally. Maybe ask them about that. Maybe get into a conversation and get the right advice from the appropriate people. I'm not suggesting you should take stock advice from your accountant. But if that's where their expertise is from a tax perspective, you'd want to lean into where they've had to put the thought in for their own situation. I want my accountant sitting there at night thinking about how they're going to get to a certain place for their own wealth because you know they've put the thought time in. You know they've thought about this in their situation. So if your accountant isn't doing property, kind of done a few for clients and, you know, going through the motions, the care factor is just not the same for me. No, I, I get you. But if you if your accountant was very successful at shares in this example and not property and you're a property investor, talk to them about property – would that not just be a red flag, just to change accountant? Yeah, change accountant. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. That's, that's okay, my cool. point. I yeah, wouldn't I you, use that. I want, yeah. like, I want an accountant that's had to go through the challenges of borrowing. So yeah, when yeah, they're yeah. thinking about tax, they're thinking about borrowing. Where if you were potentially in the, the share market, which again, I'm not, I'm not, so I can't say for what goes into that. But I look at that and go, well, there's nuances to how they do things that would be very different and potentially doesn't require borrowing because borrowing isn't done in the same way in shares as it is done through mortgages and property. Totally. I, I love the points of what you want to talk to the accountant about. The other layers that I sit across the top of mine uh, when I talk to the accountant is like, and you kind of touched on it, which were the changes for next year. And so one of the big keys is going to be, okay, probably land tax. Property's most probably gone up. And I'm probably going to acquire some more, which means are there changes for what I have to pay without anything else to the land tax that I'm going to have to fork out? Slash, are the local governments changing anything for land tax, like the state governments? <laughs> like, are there any other changes coming through? And if so, what impact is that going to have on my properties as we step into the future? The other ones is any changes to structures, right? So there are, we already know there's uh, differences in income taxes coming through from uh, the ATO in the coming years and all these things. What other impacts are there going to be for trusts and properties and all these other things because they're the ones that have to have their finger on the pulse. And just by asking those questions, it's that prompt in the back of their head. They're like, oh, yeah, no, I should have told you this. These are the things that are going to come in that are going to actually impact what you have. And here's how we should think about approaching it or here's how you can uh, approach it today as opposed to just receiving an invoice at the time to pay another bill. All right. Can we go there? All right, go. go. I, want to, I want to break what I'm about to say into two components and I'm not going to talk about one of them because it's not appropriate for this episode at all. All right, all right so uh, trusts and structures, right? Entities, the whole conversation around this. 
Um, first off, is a lot of the decisions people make in property around structures is actually for borrowing power. So I'm just going to go and say, we're not going to talk about that at all. This isn't a borrowing power episode. Uh, definitely speak to your broker and accountant if you are looking for different ways to manipulate your borrowing power, whole different game. From a tax perspective though, your uh, structures and setup is massively, massively important. And I'll go through a few of these here. Can't negative gear a property that's in a trust? Impossible. You can only negative gear a property that's in your own name. You don't get uh, tax-free growth on properties in a trust. It only works if it's your principal place of residence. Which is in your own name. Yeah, so can you imagine if you're a really high-income person and you buy a property in a trust expecting to negative gear it and then realise you can't, how much of a disappointment that may be? Dude, it's like – but it's funny – I've called myself out on this, listening to people around like these tax ideas and these tax concepts only for me to go down a rabbit hole. And then like this one sentence is like, it does not apply if you have it in a trust. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's, this is just different things. It plays games differently. Completely. Uh, and there's company structures as well, right? This is a whole different thing again. And I'll just go into this other one that's really interesting. In New South Wales, there's certain rules around buying property in a company. And it's very different than buying one in your personal name. And, de- and depending on what you're actually getting up to, you may want to take advantage of that. Totally. And first buying a trust as well. Land tax is fundamentally different in New South Wales yeah. in trust versus company. Completely. So again, it's like knowing the dynamics of these structures, not only from like, okay, if I buy a property in a company versus if I buy one in a trust, and there's varieties of trusts, whether it's bear trusts, unit trusts, discretionary trusts. Yeah, and if there's a company with that, is it a corporate trustee? You know, like these are all the important questions to come through. But then all of that is individualized to the states. Yep. So a corporate trust in Victoria is different, differently treated than one that maybe is in New South Wales. And they might be the same. I don't know off the top of my head, but you get the idea. I but totally. all of this massively affects tax in a huge way. So and knowing so have- you go. knowing the rules of this and the strategy that it's appropriate for you is a hugely important conversation to have with your accountant because all of this can make a massive difference to where you end up and the things you have to do. Have you ever looked at moving things around in different structures after you made decisions like a year or two ago? <laughs> You'd be like, ah, oh, man, if only I put it in a different structure. All right, you want to go there? We'll go there. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely made mistakes here. I, and I mean, I will only know uh, down the road, but uh, something that I did that I look back on and gone, oh, probably better ways to do it with what's unfolded. I understood that there's basically a way to play the game of property in which if you buy um, properties in different states, what you can do is actually remain under the land tax threshold in every state. You can grow a substantial portfolio without having to incur a bigger cost. Yep. So I was all over understanding that probably not a good idea in my case and what I want to achieve that if I just buy properties in Southeast Melbourne, that's going to end up in a very strong tax situation versus spreading out some of the risk. There's also like geo risk I wasn't a fan of as well, right? I was like, you never know what any state is going to do. So I don't want to be all in one state. And you only have to look at what's gone on recently with Queensland and some of their tax decisions and things going through government to go, I probably wouldn't want to have all my property just there. Completely. Or Victoria with some of their standards and the way they do things, but we'll leave that out of it. So that I was all over. The thing I was not 
necessarily aware of or all over is that I put a lot of property in my personal name to start with. So I very much limited my ability to um, manipulate distributions, and I use that word selectively there, or to uh, add other people to trust and do other things in that arena that would be favorable for my tax situation. I'm going to have to say this again. That is not tax advice. That is in my personal circumstances, and it may not be suitable for other people, but those impacts have definitely uh, limited my ability to make certain moves later on. Not that I can't make changes to these, it's just expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. So, for example, I have a property right now that in hindsight I should have, uh, in my situation, put into a different structure. I didn't. If I wanted to move that property uh, today into another structure, I would have to pay stamp duty again. And then I would also have to pay capital gains on the property so far. Now, keep in mind, I have to pay capital gains on it at some point anyway. So these aren't the only real cost here is the stamp duty again. To move it, yep. Yeah, but it's making basically my deferred tax strategy into a tax payable strategy now. Yep. And that has an implication that I am not a fan of, just not a fan of. So there's other things I'm now doing to negate the impacts of that. I did something similar, but on the other side. So I bought a property that I knew, I knew I had to renovate this property. And we spent like, I think it was about 32 grand renovating this thing, um, put it into a, into a trust with a corporate trustee and then did the renovation only after for me to go, oh, wait, it's not in my personal name. <laughs> I'm like, I can't offset my income. So you would have carry forward losses? Yeah. So, so it's like, so it, it's not the end of the world. It's just, I'm like, well, if, if I swapped these two assets and I did the one that I was in my personal name for a reno and the other one that I'm not doing a reno on in a trust, I'm like, it would have been a better situation short term. Can, can we go there a little bit? Of course we can. All right. So just to explain what uh, is referenced there is if you have a property that's in your personal name and you take a loss, you can negative gear it. Right? Okay. That yeah. is the strategy um, people would use. Not financial advice, once again. If you that's have a property in a trust that is negative geared, you don't get to offset that loss against the income. You actually take it as a loss against the future profitability of the trust, the trust. Yep. which means you basically have this loss locked up in the trust and you have to wait for profits to be created to negate it. Now you do get it. It's just, it's like a, you know how we tax deferred strategy on paying it? Well, this is the government doing it the other way. <laughs> Completely. It's like, ah, but, and it, but it comes back to the point of um, like, what is the long game, which is where my mind always comes back to. So I'm like, ah, frustrating in the, in the scenario of then and there at the end of the financial year of me, having this conversation with the accountant and him going, yeah, just so you know, if like that was in your personal name, this would have happened. And I'm like, oh, okay, like shit, like, I can't do anything now, but just being aware of it. Well, this is why I think you've got to have an accountant who's into property. The nuances of this make such a difference. And to, I like the idea that they've put the time in to solve this for themselves because it was important for their own wealth. Yep. That where I'm just getting, I'm not the guinea pig right? This is the, it's already been tried and tested for themselves and others. I'm just more leveraging off a system that can work there. Yeah. So somebody's I, already aware of all the nuts and bolts and how it works. I was quite surprised by this as well. As you get deeper into this game and you do uh, develop the use of different structures and entities, even where you park your cash in different offsets can make a difference to yourself. So I'll go through this as an example, and this won't apply to all people, but just an idea to talk with your advisors about 
let's say you've got um, $100,000 and you've got two properties, one's in a trust and one is not in your personal name. If you set your spare cash in the offset account of the property that's in a trust, you're kind of making that trust more profitable so that you wouldn't necessarily have losses in it in that way. So in your circumstance here, Grant, like you might maybe be better off looking at the use of offset accounts to make that work for you in a more tax-favorable scenario as well. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> mm, interesting. <laughs> but it wasn't 100 grand, it was 75. <laughs> it's like dumb straight in. Again, you got to look at these things and you have to ask yourself why you're doing it. It's like uh, uh, parking the borrowing equation out of it, which is one of the reasons why we want to keep our trust profitable potentially. I look at that and just say from a tax perspective, also a very worthy conversation to have with the accountant. You know, one of the things that happened last financial year, uh, which was interesting, was there was a property that I had, which I hadn't got a depreciation schedule done for. And it was actually the accountant that just spotted the oversight. And he's like, dude, like, you just, know, where's the depreciation schedule for this thing? And I'm like, ah, oh, I forgot to go get one. He's like, ah, oh, that's fine, no worries at all. Like, we'll just go and do it before the end of the financial year. And I'm like, that's, that's comes back to that point around the accountant doing the thing themselves and actually being aware of it. Cause if it was just someone t- ticking a box and dotting the eyes, like, I'd have to be the one that would have to come up with all of these things <laughs> to, to be ensure that we're actually covering everything. So, like, a depreciation schedule is a, a great one. Huge one. I I do like that this is well known in property, but again, an easy oversight. How much was, I mean, you don't have to give the nuts and bolts of it, but if you had not done the depreciation, versus done it. Massive. Yep. Massive. And I'm just sitting there going, oh man, it's like, it's like, it's money for jam. It's I don't do anything and I I get the cash. All I have to do is like tick the box and be able to do it. I'm just blown away by, again, uh, number one, how much time property investors will spend on the data of finding the right property, but won't spend any of that on having their books up to date to make statistically good decisions on things. Blown away. (laughs) Um, Two is like how obsessed we are with like, oh, I got the rent up five bucks a week, Not, not recognizing that it's like you could probably save that in tax, putting the time in with a good accountant. Like this is one of the dials that can make a massive difference to your profitability, just like financing structures can make a massive difference to profitability. So it's Same a huge, a yeah, yeah, it's an oversight not to be more invested in this game in my opinion. And there's, the, the one thing that always catches me out is every time I talk to my accountant about this, there is something that I'm not aware of that they bring up, that as they mature, as their clients continue down the property path, they see different things. They see governments changing stuff and they're just like, oh, this is what's happening and we could totally apply this to your scenario. So in this example, it could be, I don't know, imagine that New South Wales, we were talking about the land tax in New South Wales. Imagine they remove and it says land tax, all land tax on all properties owned in a company down to zero bucks. So any dollar value, it is just how it is. And so for your tax accountant to be able to cross that and be like, hey, like this is coming this is how we can play in your scenario. Let's fast fast forward this. I think that is one of the biggest hacks is them having their finger on the pulse. So you're not sitting there trying to look through all of these state-based government websites, trying to figure out which ones apply to you and consuming all the information just on the off scenario that something's going to change. I'm not sure many people are aware how much of a role staying up to date on legislation is. Like, do you think many of us just go, oh, this is tax, it's like, set in stone it's a tattoo not recognizing how often actually changes 
<laughs> so like land tax changes like every year, like the calculations and everything since then. I just said, oh, oh my gosh. Um, but I think it's, it is one of the constants that people just aren't aware of. Um, like it's just, and I don't know why, it just seems to be one of those things that it's just not spoken enough about that it just kind of comes out in the wash. Because it's not as exciting as going and buying 10 properties in a year grant. Is it, is or the next hotspot. Is this why they have the dunk contests in the basketball and not the defense contests? Absolutely. The people know what they want. <laughs> this podcast is probably tanking right now because it's about tax. It's <laughs> yeah, probably the worst it's... episode we've made. <laughs> and then it's probably the most important episode we've ever made. <laughs> but it, it is what it is. Is there anything else that you look at, like anything that you talk to your accountant about or oversights that you typically have seen or even some oversights that you've had in the past that you're like, mm, man, I should have avoided that? Uh, look, I think we've actually done a pretty good one. I might even bring some of these into a bit of a list here and we might round this one out. So number one is end of Q1, that's the signal. Go talk to your accountant, go talk to your broker, go talk to your advice team. Get things in order so you can be in a strategically strong decision to round out a financial year, making the best decisions you can with the team you have. Number two is um, communicating with your team what your plan is and where you're trying to go and asking those important questions of like, what are other people doing? Exactly. I think is is really important um, so you can get an understanding of the landscape that comes into it. I think all the things about we've spoken around here about potentially doing upgrades, minimizing future maintenance, if appropriate, um, what uh, learning about structures and using them selectively, uh, all falls into this conversation here and probably double-checking even those depreciation schedules I think is a huge one in it. The uh, ugly conversation that it must be had. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the non-attractive conversation that's like, oh, man. Might be the most profitable conversation you have in the year. It is most profitable. And I, I will say one thing as well. Like if you are sitting there saying my accountant or someone on my property team is just not giving me these types of conversations or insights, um, the people that Charlie, you and I use, we actually put them up on the partners page. So if you want to head over to propertyandinvesting.com slash partners, you can check out any of those people and they're more the ones that we talk to and guide us on our journey as well. I'm just going to say a huge shout out to Anthony. He keeps uh, fobbing us off to be on the podcast because he's too cool. But uh, too nonetheless, cool. he is an amazing accountant. He's been instrumental on the journey for myself and, a, and you also, Grant. Amen. All right, we'll wrap this one up. If you're listening to this and you would like to be notified every single time we drop one of these episodes, I got something for you. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email and Charlie will hit send every single time we release one of these episodes so that you are notified. Just want to say thank you again for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Property and Investing.